I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. Guys, we got our redemption arc. We fucking did it, you guys. <laughs> we are so smart. We're so smart. We're like amazing. <laughs> so if you guys don't listen to Armchair Bimber- Bimbos. Uh, fake fans. Go listen to them. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Our um, secondary show where we talk about the news. Um, around a month ago, we went to a trivia event at the dog park that we take Jackson to. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like Halloween trivia, and we came in second Ugh. at the tiebreaker. We were like, tied for first. And the only reason there was a tiebreaker was a technicality. Yeah. It yeah. was a technicality, and they got an extra point for like their name. Having a good, good name, name or whatever. Which I think I, the Great Dames, great name. I think that's a good name. I yeah. think it's cute. It's and a dog we pun. didn't have to choose a different one for this one, like some teams did. Yeah. Um, but we went last night for beer coffee and dog trivia yes and we came in first we came in first the quizzes were really hard it was a lot harder like yeah. the halloween one was child's play yeah where we only missed three questions yeah but uh, clearly a lot of other teams were coming in hard as well yes um but the beer and coffee ones they were really hard they like, were so, really there were hard. a lot of chemistry questions yeah we missed a lot of questions within like the first two rounds and we were still like tied for first mm-hmm and the third was still kind of rocky. I think our lightning round really saved us. I think it, because I, I think we were still tied for um, first before the lightning round. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. So that really pulled us through. And, and we the had lightning like a beer cocktail yeah. expert on our team. Thank yes. God. So the lightning round was them giving us ingredients and we had to name the beer cocktail that they were describing. Yes. And we had an uh, Irishman, so we were yeah. ready to go. <laughs> we had some good teammates that had some names because otherwise I would have not, not known almost any of them. Yeah. Um, but anyways, we came in first, guys. Yeah, we fucking did it. the guy who was announcing it was like, oh, tied for first, great dames, back again. So I was like, fuck yeah. We're like famous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so there's a little life update. Yes. Uh, we are on to Spelunking Part 3. Yes, here we go. Oh, forgot, this is the podcast Rejects, if you couldn't tell. And I'm Spencer, sitting here with Alaska, who's gonna tell us even more crazy stories (laughs) about Spelunking. Yes. Um, so I just have two stories for today. They're both a little long, but um, very fascinating and also disturbing. Okay. Um, if you were claustrophobic, it's like maybe not the episode for you. Yeah, skip this one. Because one of these stories, when I first heard it, I almost threw up because I'm very claustrophobic. Oh, wow. And hearing okay. it, I was like, Ugh. Yeah. Absolutely not. Ooh. So there's your warning. A also, warning. both of these stories involve death. So. Okay. Just be aware. So our first story today is the story of David Shaw. Mm -hmm. So this guy is pretty famous if you know anything about spelunking, um, especially cave diving. Okay. Specifically. Um, So this man, David Shaw, was an accomplished diver from Australia. He started diving after he was introduced to it by his son. Um, he did a few dives to like shipwrecks in the Philippines before uh, going cave diving, oh. which he realized was his true passion. Um, Wait, so you started with shipwrecks, and then you were like, mm, "Caves, that's the ticket." I'm like, shipwreck dive, like 
diving down to see shipwrecks. I'm like, that's actually cool. Okay, yeah. it's still dangerous, but I can understand the appeal. I can understand the appeal because, like, there's a shipwreck. Like, yeah. that's cool as fuck. I actually think the danger is, like, worth it in that case. Yeah. Because I'm like, you could discover something cool. Yeah, you could find, like, cool artifacts Anything or that's close or adjacent to treasure hunting yeah. is cool. Yeah, I get that. Um, and it is arguably more dangerous than caving because oh. um, it's easy to get caught in tides and it's right. easy to drown. Right. And a lot of them are deep underwater. We yeah, will do yeah. a series on shipwrecks because I uh, right. find them very interesting. Yeah. So, um, but you saw like a hole like made of rocks and you were like, that's the ticket. It was like, fuck yes. <laughs> like, oh, I love this. So <laughs> weird. Can't relate. So, um, obviously he has caved in a ton. He was, you know, I think he went to like 300 caves before this story. Wow. So can't even cover any of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this story takes place at Bushman's Hole, which... These names are weak. Um, This cave is located in South Africa, Mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. Um, It is one of the world's deepest freshwater caves. I think it's the third deepest of the freshwater caves. Um, It is at an altitude of over 1,500 feet above sea level. Oh. And then it goes to the depths of 282.6 meters that we know of. It could go deeper. It's not fully explored, like most cave systems. Mm -hmm. Um, the altitude makes this dive exceptionally difficult because divers have to create a decompression schedule equivalent for a dive of like 340 meters because oh. they're coming in at the higher altitude. Right. So it like fucks with the schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, so technically it's a lot more difficult, like the technicalities of it. Oh, okay. Um, the first death that occurred in this cave was in 1993. Um, it was a man who died after blacking out at a depth of only 60 meters. His body was brought up immediately by, um, his diving buddy who was with him, but Mm -hmm. he could not be revived. Mm. I did try and find some images, like some maps of this cave. Uh, I will see if I can post one on our Instagram. It looks like it's mostly like a really deep hole. Like, it doesn't have a lot of, like, skinny out shoots into different areas. It has some small ones, but it's mostly just a really deep hole in the ground. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, it's a little difficult to maneuver into the cave, but once you're in there, it's just, like, one big area. Ah. Mm-hmm. So, Dion Dreyer was the second person we know who died in this cave. Mm-hmm. Um, Dreyer was 20 years old in 1994, so it's just a year after the first death that we know. He had logged over 200 dives and was invited to join some South African Diving Association divers at Bushman's Hole over the 1994 Christmas break. So Mm. I think he was home visiting his family. Um, The team had planned to descend to the cave 492 feet deep. It's wild when I research these how they just switch between the metric system and feet back and forth. They just like willy nilly, willy Not that either of those measurements mean anything to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but they invited Dreyer to be dive support on the team. So mm. dive support, a lot of times they're like setting up, like I've talked about in, you know, some of our older episodes, some of our more recent episodes on um, spelunking where they're setting up extra tanks and maybe like tying lines down there. Like these are the people who are going in shallower dives to allow the main divers have an easier time as they're going through the system. Mm. Uh, so he's going to be dive support. 
So on December 17th, 1994, Dreyer was helping the team set up the conditions for the dive, which was supposed to take place later that week. According to firsthand accounts for the, from those diving with him, Dreyer was lost on a scent. So they were coming back up uh, around 50 meters from the surface. Oh. Um, they believe that he had lost consciousness either by oxygen toxicity or hypercapnia, which mm. I talked about in the recent episodes, mm-hmm. uh, which was induced by the high work rate of breathing at that depth. Um, and he was having to work hard down there, so it was causing him to breathe faster. Mm-hmm. Um, they were not able to recover his body. They He was left in there. Um, two weeks later, Dreyer's father hired a small, remotely operated sub used by the De Beers Mining Company to, like, go down into the cave and search for his son's remains. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did locate his helmet on the floor of the cave, so it had sunk to the bottom, but there was no sign of his body. Um, and it's Ooh. pretty dangerous to get down there. So, um, yeah, that's the best they could do. They really, they didn't know where he was. Right. I'm kind of going to get into the details of why later, but just so you guys know, like, most times bodies will float to the top. Mm-hmm. But um, when they are wearing heavy equipment, like tanks and stuff, those things can, like, pull a body down. And if you were underwater in a cave system, you can get stuck in, like, mud systems and clay that's down there. So a lot of times that's what, like, holds bodies down. Oh, okay. Um, But that's not typical. Like, bodies will float. Mm -hmm. So if you throw a body into a river or a lake. It'll just pop right back up. It's coming back up. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Just so you know. (laughs) Fun fact. <laughs> All the murderers listening. Yeah. Like, write that down. <laughs> write that down. Write that down. <laughs> In October 2004, which was 10 years after Dreyer's death, David Shaw discovered his body in the cave at the depths of 272 meters deep. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, David Shaw was just down there caving generally. He tried to lift Dreyer's body off of the floor of the cave, but the cylinders he was wearing were firmly stuck in the mud, so he couldn't move him. So instead, David tied a line to him so that he could be found again, which the line went all the way to the you know entrance of the cave. Mm-hmm. In January of 2005, so just a couple months later, David Shaw became involved with a team of eight divers and their support team of rescuers and chamber as- attendants to try and recover Dreyer's body. Just a little background, not only is David Shaw like a very accomplished cave diver, but he is also pretty trained in body recovery, which Mm. is a very specific kind of cave diving. Right. It is not something that most people can do. It is extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to get a body off of Everest, Mm -hmm. Um, which a tangent there, I still hear the myth of it, all the bodies being up there, uh, most of them are no longer up there. Oh, okay. The ones that people use as like landmarks, mm-hmm. uh, they think that they were like quietly pushed off uh. by the people who, you know, frequent the mountain. Oh, okay. Because it's, you know, the family members of the people probably didn't appreciate all of the pictures being taken of their like, per, you know, yeah. someone they care about curled up, frozen yeah, like, to death. Petrified. Yeah. Like, a- um, I would be kind of yeah, mad about that, too. Nice. Yeah, for sure. Um, but anyways, that's besides the point. By the, like, um, is it in Tibet? Yes. Yeah, the, like, Tibetan, like, guides or something. Yeah, yeah. that's who they think it was. Um, that makes sense. It wasn't, like, a big production, and yeah. it's way too dangerous to try and get them, like, safely down to right. give to families. 
but they think they were just removed at least from the main path because like right. if you know anything about Everest it's very like guided yes very guided it's very like one path yeah, yeah you're not going up there willy-nilly most of the time no not what we're talking about but just felt like I would bring it up yeah <laughs> get back on topic Dreyer's body was very deep in this cave. Like I said, 272 meters down. Mm -hmm. So it took a ton of prep to try and make the dive to bring him back up. The team took weeks planning out the entire dive meticulously. Once the team had arrived in South Africa, they ran practice dives and um, they did practice tests at 10 meters, which involved cutting loose a diver's gear and then putting that diver in a body bag. Uh, so they were doing tests of basically everything they would need to do once they got to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, David Shaw actually ran his own little like blog website where he talked about his diving experience. Um, so that's really interesting to me. It is still up. It has not been updated since his death. Right. Um, but you can go to it and, like, read his own, you know, read in his own words him, yeah. like, talking about this. And he has a huge section on there just about this dive. Wow. Um, so on his website, there is a, like, day-to-day planner laid out um, in a lot of detail, like, as they're coming up to... The dive. It seems that a few days before the dive, the website stopped being updated because the few days before the dive, like in the planner, are very vague and mm. seem sort of like this is what's supposed to happen. Whereas the ones before that are pretty detailed as far as like what did happen. Right. Um, there is also a section on his website titled Future Plans, which is basically just about this dive. This, like, he this was his only future plan at the moment, mm. uh, mostly because it took so much planning. I'm sure it was, you know, yeah, it took up most, m- most of what of he his... was thinking about. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to read this paragraph from that section because I feel like, you know, he's going to explain it way better than I can. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, once on the bottom, I have to cut Dion out of his dive harness, place him in a body bag, custom built in parentheses, Hook a strong wire line to the dive gear, get back to the drop line for with the body bag, and the other end of the line fastened to the dive gear. Hook the line to the drop line, and then start my ascent with the body. Quite a lot to achieve in five minutes. The priority will be the body and then the gear. If I have trouble ascending with the body, I will fasten the body bag to the line to the surface and it can be pulled up later. Assuming the ascent with the body works okay, I will pass the body to Don Shirley who will meet me at 220 meters on my ascent. He will take it up to the next support diver at 170 meters who will take it up to 120 um, and so on. Mm -hmm. Thus, Dion will be out of the water many hours before me. So clearly this involves like a huge team, a lot of planning, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, like, insane Yeah, hearing, like, hearing him write about it. For sure. Um, and all of these people, and knowing that he gets down there, and then he has all this time to get back up. So, mm-hmm. for a dive like this, it takes about 25 minutes to get to the bottom of the cave, because they're not going into, like, deep caves where they have to, like, shimmy through. Right. Um, but it takes five hours to get back up to avoid potentially fatal decompression sickness. Right. So, that's, it's a lot to get down there and, mm-hmm. and worry about. Yeah. 
So on January 8th of 2005, Shaw went into the cave to execute this plan. He was actually recording his dive with an underwater camera, which you can see sections of on YouTube, um, including his last moments, um, which is extremely disturbing. He ran into difficulties when he arrived at the body and it unexpectedly began to float. He had been told by various experts that the body would remain negatively buoyant because the visible parts were reduced to the skeleton. What they did not account for was how his corpse was decaying inside the wetsuit. His corpse had turned into a soap-like substance called adipocere, which floats. Mm. Um, This stuff is often called corpse wax. That's like sort of the general term for it. Um, It forms in the fat of a corpse and then transforms into adipocere as the decay process goes um it's most likely to form in environments that have high levels of moisture and an absence of an absence of oxygen such as in the wet ground or mud at the bottom of a lake or even in a sealed casket um it can occur in both embalmed and untreated bodies Mm. which i didn't know i thought that was really interesting Mm. um it forms within a month of death and if there is an absence of air it can stay for centuries while i was actually researching this because i was really curious like what this was mm-hmm. um they talked about how they found a body from the 1300s and they were still able to like dissect the brain because the corpse wax had insulated it so well that they could still like look at a lot of the part like the organs and stuff within the body which honestly i thought was really cool it's really fucking cool <laughs> like research that you would never be able to do in any other capacity yeah but like I said, it can stay like that. As long as there's no air, it doesn't really shift. Right. So his corpse was turning into this inside of his wetsuit. Right. Um, so while Shaw was trying to maneuver the body, he had placed his can light on the cave floor, which is basically like a mega powerful flashlight. Um you know, tons times brighter and more powerful than like your regular flashlight. Mm -hmm. Um, It's actually connected by wires to a heavy battery canister normally worn on the cave diver's waist um, or sometimes attached to their tank. So this is like heavy duty. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Normally he would have wrapped the wire around his neck, but he was unable to do so. The lines from the body bag became entangled with the light head and the physical effort it took trying to free himself led to his death. Mm. So he was trying to untangle all of these wires down there. Yeah. At the 220 mark, the time he was meant to spend at the bottom of the cave passed with no sign of him. So Don Shirley, the man who was waiting there for him, his backup diver, actually risked his own life to go down to 250 meters but could not see any sign of Shaw because obviously it is pitch black. You can't see anything in there yeah not that much farther than whatever your flashlight can see yeah um he had to turn back when his breathing apparatus started to fail and he began to vomit in the water and was overcome by dizziness on his ascent he shot up out of the cave um violently ill with decompression sickness with a dive slate that he had written on bearing the words dave's not coming back um which I believe is also the name of a documentary that they recently made about this. I think it came out last year. Yeah. Um, I'm very interested to watch it, but I, that is like the most haunting thing I can think of. Yeah. Um, that is like, so it's deeply disturbing to me. Jesus. So David, who I just, I like him a lot. He seems like a really cool dude. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
knew that this was a really dangerous dive mm-hmm. and knew that he was like the best guy for the job. So if he could not do it, nobody can. Yeah. So he had told everyone at the dive that if anything were to happen to him, that there should be no attempt to bring his body back up. He told his dive buddies, if something goes wrong, leave me down there. Yeah. Cause he was like, nobody else needs to die for this. If no. something goes wrong with my dive. Yeah. Um, but the Wednesday after the tragic event, uh, members of his team went back to complete the task of retrieving equipment, such as the extra diving cylinders that had been left behind when the dive went, you know, badly awry, which seems like a very difficult thing to have to do after, God. like, the person you were assisting died down there. Yeah. Um, two of them went down to about 100 meters and tied an inflatable buoy to the main line running up from the cave bottom which Shaw had tied around Dreyer's body the year prior so the one that was still there right um but what they didn't know is that David's body had become entangled with the line um so as the buoy was pulled up the oxygen in David's body expanded making him lighter and he floated to the underwater roof of the cave oh bizarrely Dryer's body was pulled up by the force of all the expanding oxygen in David's body um, and was also floating to the top. Uh, they ultimately recovered David's body at 36 meters and Dryer's was just dangling a few meters below him. So he ultimately Su- succeeded. Yeah, he did recover him, I guess. Um, oh, my God. Fully on accident um, that this happened, but you know it's kind of nice for the families that they were able to retrieve the bodies. Yeah, um, they were also able to retrieve the tape, obviously because he was recording. Right. Um. So they reviewed the tape, and obviously it was clear that he had died by drowning. Um. They could hear him breathing hard and like harder and harder while trying to get out of the tangled cave line. Mm. Um. And then basically just suddenly stopped breathing. Right. Um. I have watched the video. It's just like, it's, it's bizarre. I like, can't even imagine dying to down like alone in a cave next to a corpse that's been there for 10 years. Jesus. Don Shirley, the man that I mentioned before, um, also nearly died from this dive. Um, he eventually recovered, but was left with permanent brain damage, which Mm -hmm. impaired his balance because of the decompression sickness. Right. That's like, you know, harrowing. Ugh. it's, just like horrifying it's like one of the worst stories i've ever read yeah (laughs) and like i definitely recommend going to look at david shaw's like website Mm -hmm. he seems like a really cool guy he was like a pilot and like flew all over the world wow loved caving Mm -hmm. had kids obviously a wife like he seemed like a really good dude who was just trying to like help this family because he found a body down there and he's like well i should try and get it back for them yeah um and unfortunately lost his life because of it but Mm. um it's just a really fascinating story. And honestly, reading the website that just like suddenly ends is very haunting yeah. in a way that I don't even know how to focalize. Like yeah. it's very, you know, the internet's a graveyard feeling. Mm-hmm. So I want to move on to um, our last story and really the story that inspired me to write this whole series. Cause it's the one that freaks me out the most mm-hmm. um, and does not involve water. So we are done with cave diving and people Ooh. drowning underwater. Yeah. Well, just a lot. Dr- yeah. Drowning underwater. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> You'll see. Um, so again, this is like one of the most famous spelunking accidents ever. If mm-hmm. you look up like spelunking in general, this pops up. Yeah. 
So this is the story of John Edward Jones in the Nutty Putty Caves of John Jones. Um, just a quick, very unrelated side note. Mm-hmm. But I have tried to tell this story before to, like, random people. And I'll say John Jones. And inevitably, someone who is not paying close attention will say, don't you mean Jim Jones? Yes. And I'm like, well, no. No, because I'm not talking about Jim Jones. I'm like, I know what I'm about. Yeah. And I'm talking about a spelunking accident. Do you think Jim Jones died in a cave? He famously did not. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure we all know where he died. Yeah. We know exactly (laughs) where that bitch is. was not underground. Yeah. (laughs) Unrelated to the story, but it just, I was always like, what? Don't correct me. Like, I'm right. Yeah. (laughs) Um... Also, as I mentioned, the first time I heard this, I almost rub. It was actually told to me by one of my friends who was like, oh, have you read about this story? And told it to me in the car. We were, like, driving somewhere together. And I was, like, sitting in the passenger seat just, like, having a panic attack. I was like, oh, my God. That is the worst <sighs> thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, and then later that year, we actually went on a road trip um, basically to a bunch of states west of Texas, Mm -hmm. um, one of which was Utah. And we tried to drive out to this cave Mm -hmm. um, just to, like, see, because it's a, you know, there's a gravestone for him there now. Yeah. Um, But I just, you know, was curious where it was. Not to go in the cave, obviously. Yeah. Duh. Duh. (laughs) Um, But it was extremely difficult to get to. It's, like, very far from civilization and, like, pretty far off the main highway. You kind of have to, like, drive on, like, you know, dirt gravel roads, which surprised me a lot. Mm. So this story takes place in the Nutty Putty Cave, which if you are paying attention, you'll remember was brought up in my accident on Y Mountain story. Yes. uh, Where it was said that it was a great cave for beginners. (laughs) Yikes. Uh, uh (laughs) Uh-oh, is all I can say to that. Yeah. Because that, oh, no. (laughs) We've got a crazy person on our hands. (laughs) So the Nutty Putty Cave, which is in Utah County, Utah. Yeah. Just like Y Mountain. um, West of Utah Lake, because they just have one name for everything. Right. Um, It is a hydrothermal cave, which is basically a cave that is formed from the bottom up by hot water. Mm. Um, It is... It was first discovered in 1960 and is currently owned by the Utah School and Institutional Trust Lands Administration. That's a mouthful. Yeah. And is managed by the, and sorry if I butcher the name, uh, Timonogus Grotto, which is basically the local branch of the National Speleology Society. Ah. The name of the Nutty Putty Cave refers to the soft brown putty-like texture of the clay found in the tunnels. Mm. It has about 1,400 feet of chutes and tunnels and is only accessible by a narrow surface hole. Mm. So it's pretty difficult to get into it to begin with. Before the John Jones incident in 2009, four separate rescues of cavers had taken place inside this cave of, you know, where cavers were stuck in the, like, tight twists. All of these people survived. Uh, The cave is visited by over 5,000 people a year before this incident. And... Um, they believe that this caused an excessive smoothing of the rocks inside the cave, which were already pretty malleable. Right. Um, just making it more and more dangerous as time went on. Of course. 
Because of this, there was an effort made to study the cave and severely limit the number of visitors. Yes. Good call. Yeah. Um, they were actually worried about injuries and predicted a fatality would occur in one of the caves, but only in one of the cave's prominent features, which was basically a 45-degree room called the Big Slides. They thought someone would fall and oh. die there. Okay. In 2004, two boys had nearly lost their lives in separate incidents in the same place where John was trapped. So um, in one of these cases, the rescuers took 14 hours to free a 16-year-old kid using several complex pulley systems that they had to build in the cave. The cave was closed in 2006, uh, kind of following the Y Mountain incident, because that really brought up a lot of issues of people like of going into caves that were not well managed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they just really wanted to dot their I's, I guess. Yeah. But it did reopen in May of 2009. So John Edward Jones was a 26-year-old medical student. Um, I believe he was from Utah. I believe his family lived there as well. But um, he was living in Virginia at the time with his wife, Emily, and their one-year-old daughter, Lizzie. Um, Emily was also pregnant during this, so her second child was due in June. Oh, wow. This year. So it was 2009. No. Sorry. Of 2010 is when the baby was due. Because this oh. story takes place at the end of 2009. Got it. Okay. So John was an amateur spelunker. No, that's not right. It's literally the opposite of what's true. <laughs> <laughs> Just lying for fun. Yeah. So John Jones was not an amateur spelunker by any means. Um, he had gone on many explorations before. And when he was younger, he explored such caves as this one with his father and his brother so they were kind of it's kind of a family activity oh he also volunteered as a trapped victim for a utah cave rescue an organization founded by his father so this oh. like rescue group and he you know volunteered as a trap victim which is ironic unfortunately yeah so john and his wife were visiting his family in utah for thanksgiving mm -hmm. um when they decided to go out to the Nutty Putty Cave to explore. So this was like right before Thanksgiving, I believe. Um, although it had been years since John had was in a cave, because, you know, he's in school. Right. Out in Virginia. He's busy. Um, he was still considered to have the perfect stature for spelunking, which I was like. Is he just really skinny? And yeah. Small? He was whip thin, is what they called him. Um, so although he was taller than most at six feet tall. So it's oh. pretty tall to like get into those caves. Yeah. So John, his brother and father, and the nine other friends entered the cave around 8 p.m. on November 24th, 2009. So late. They're always, like, starting really late in the day, and it stresses me out. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, why? The group initially split into two, with the children and a few adults exploring the less dangerous parts of the cave, while the others decided to explore the more treacherous areas. About an hour into the caving expedition, John decided to find a part of the Nutty Putty Cave called the Birth Canal. I told you it was coming back. Ugh. They have this in every, like, cave. Tight hole. Birth canal. They're like, mommy, sorry. Mommy, sorry. <laughs> mommy, sorry. I'm like, get out of there. <laughs> We're already Fuckers. born. It's too late. Can't do it again. <laughs> By the way, we'll have, there is like a very detailed map of this system. So that will be on our Instagram. So if you want to follow along with 
the places that I'm mentioning, I think it's really helpful for sure to understand like where he is in the cave. Yeah. So he found an entrance that he thought was for the birth canal and started to crawl through it using his fingers, hips, and stomach. It was like the only way he was able to move in there. Uh, but realized he had made a mistake. He was in an unmapped section of the cave and couldn't move backwards. Oh, God. I'm not going to have a panic attack. I'm not going to have a panic attack. <laughs> Ugh, really f- just okay it's fine um he thought he saw a larger opening at the other side of this like little area he was in which is common in these kinds of caves they'll have like really tight um holes that they have to go through and then it'll kind of open up into an area where you can kind of maneuver around right um but this was not the case and it was about to head into a dead end but he couldn't really see that right um to get over one area of the cave, because it was extremely small in diameter, uh, just barely 10 inches across and 18 inches high, um, about the size of the opening of a clothes dryer, which I was like, oh, I don't know. Um, that's a cl- small clothes dryer. <laughs> yeah. Um, he basically exhaled all of the air in his chest to decrease his rib cage mm-hmm. um, so that he could fit through the space uh, but once he got through it and he inhaled his rib cage virtually trapped him in the small area Ugh. and could not back back out of it um, and he was stuck at about a 70 degree angle so upside down Ugh. the chair of the speleology group that I mentioned actually said as cavers there's one thing we're taught not to do and that's go head first into tight squeezes going downward um which he then said, had he been oriented the other way, it's my opinion he would have gotten out. Which, again, not an appropriate thing to say when somebody dies. Yeah. Don't stop doing that. They're so fucking, like... Insensitive. Yeah. <laughs> Just horrible people. It's like, okay. Um, which I have seen most... I've seen a lot of pictures of people caving in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And I all of them look like they're going head first. I'm not really sure you would maneuver into a cave foot, like, feet first. Um, but what the fuck do I know? Yeah. I will never go in caves. Not willingly. Jesus. Find me dead in a cave. I, it was murdered. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I was thrown down there. So John's brother, Josh was the first one to find him and try to pull him out. Unfortunately, he was pulling at his calves and this caused John to slide even farther down into the shaft. Um, so now he was completely stuck upside down with one hand beneath him and the other wedged above, both of them useless. Yeah. It's hard to listen to this, right? It's really like, hard. It's just, it's, I am very claustrophobic. Yeah. Um, so Josh navigated out of the cave to get help. Um, but John was trapped nearly 400 feet into the cave and 100 feet below the earth's surface. So it took a while for him to just get out of the cave and mm-hmm. then for a rescuer to show up. The first rescuer who arrived was Susie. Matola, um, who arrived around 12.30 a.m. John had been trapped inside the cave upside down for three and a half hours by this point. She crawled into the narrow passage with ropes tied around her ankles so rescuers could pull her out if she got stuck. Um, she eventually came upon... This is just like... It's so... It's just a haunting image in my brain. Mm-hmm. Like permanently burned into it she eventually came upon a pair of running shoes sticking out of a narrow crevice at the tunnel's end 
and that was it. That was like all she could see of him. There is a picture like this on the internet that mm-hmm. pops up a lot when researching this case. I don't believe that is John Jones. I think that is a different thing. Oh, okay. I don't think there was a picture taken of his shoes, but that was it of this like a very small hole that he was stuck in. Oof. Um, she said to him, hi, John, my name is Susie. How's it going? <laughs> and then heard him say back, hi, Susie. Thanks for coming. But I really, really want to get out. She told him, oh, no worries, John. You're going to be out of here lickety-split. Which is just, like, heartbreaking. Um, This is so sad. So they originally tied a rope to his ankles and tried to pull him back out. um, But the turns in the cave caused too much friction on the rope, and he wouldn't budge at all. So there are tons of rescuers showing up as this is happening, slowly, you know, arriving on the scene to, you know, provide support. So one of the rescuers told trauma physician Doug Murdoch that this man was nearly upside down and explained that he didn't have much time. So they said basically that the human body isn't meant to be upside down. Um, While upside down, your body has to pump blood out of the brain all the time. Right. Just putting a lot of pressure on your heart as, Mm -hmm. you know, you're down there. Inside the cave, John's blood would begin pooling in his brain and lungs. His circulation would be slowed and toxins would release in the buildup of the blood. There was a chance that if the rescues were to free John, the toxins would rush to his heart and kill him instantly. Um, Murdoch predicted that he had about eight to ten hours to live at that point. Jesus. Um, God, it was just like crazy. Honestly, that's something I never knew, that if you were upside down for too long, it would kill you. Yeah. Like, it makes sense, but it's just, before hearing about this case, it was never something I had thought about. Right. Um, But that really, you know, made this a lot worse. Mm -hmm. So Susie spent about two hours down there with him before resurfacing to rest, and then another rescuer took her place. So he wasn't alone, really, almost at any time, which I think is good, Um, you know have some at least not be by yourself yeah stuck in this like horrible situation yeah in the meantime the team designed a complicated pulley system which i mentioned before they had to do this before which Mm -hmm. i'm like maybe just keep it in there yeah um they had to design a complicated pulley system inside the cave um this took an enormous amount of time um because each time they had to go into the tunnel to pass a piece of gear, it would take nearly an hour Oof. to, like, get in. And um, there will be a picture of the pulley system, like, that you can see um, on our Instagram as well. Because it is a very complicated system that they set up. Mm-hmm. Um, they also ordered six gallons of vegetable oil to help slide John out. Um, okay. They also considered using explosives, but then quickly determined that neither of those things would work. Right. Which, like... Yeah. (laughs) Just put dynamite down there. I'm sure he'll be fine. Just, like, blow him up, and then he won't be stuck anymore. They also, while they were working on this pulley system, were trying to widen um, the rock, like, the rocky corkscrew to prepare for, like, John's exit. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were, like, using drills and chisels, which, you know, they were working with all day. Uh, The large equipment was too big to get into the cave, so this was going extremely slowly. Mm -hmm. Uh, It took about an hour and a half to drill through just six inches of rock. Jeez. Um, Emily, John's wife, found out about him being stuck in the cave, you know, soon after, like, Josh called for help and was told to just stay home. She waited by the phone all night, um, expecting to hear 
something. Uh, but in the morning when she still hadn't heard anything, she took Lizzie, their one year old and drove down to the site. Mm-hmm. Um, which is swarming with people at this point. Of course. She talked to the Utah County Sheriff who said, we'll get John out. We'll get him out for you. And she said, but he was tearing up when he said this, like something wasn't right. So this was like huge on the news when this happened. I'm sure, especially in Utah. Um, And there were 137 volunteers in total there working to try and get him out. Yeah. So they eventually got the pulley system set up and attached it to John's legs. But when they pulled him up, his feet hit the tunnel's low ceiling um, because he couldn't go straight back out. Um, Because he had been upside down for so long, his heart was struggling to pump blood to his legs. So this impact made him scream in pain. Um, This is when rescuers realized that they were like, truly fucked Um, because in order to get him out they would have to bend his body backwards likely breaking his legs Mm -hmm. and because his legs had barely any blood they believed the shock of this break would kill him yeah Um, and even worse the pulley anchors had started to slip from the places they were attached in the cave they actually injured another like rescuer that was down there when it slipped out of this like you know clay wall and like hit him in the face um so the pulley system broke down and they could no longer use it. And they basically were like, John is like back to where he began, not knowing really what to do. Um, after 27 hours of being in this cave upside down around midnight, John um, stopped responding. Mm-hmm. Leading up to it, his voice was getting more and more nasally um, as he was having trouble breathing through the blood that was pulling in his lungs. I also, this is like a side note. Um, I didn't originally write this in, but I do think it's interesting. So obviously he's Mormon from Utah. Right. Um, and he did spend time down there. Like, I think it was like originally when Josh was like waiting for the rescuers, they were down there like singing Mormon hymns together. Mm. <laughs> that was interesting. Um, and he had this really interesting conversation with Susie who mentioned Mormonism and he asked if she was Mormon and she kind of said like, you know, she'd moved away from her faith mm-hmm. and this incident like brought her closer to that afterwards because of like the way he talked about Mormonism, which I just thought was like really fascinating. Mm. Um, it's not, you know, super relevant but it's i think it's interesting just to know like his character a little bit yeah um he seems like a really like he was a really nice guy yeah um so after he stopped responding a medical professional crawled down close enough um to pronounce him dead due to cardiac arrest and suffocation right um so he essentially drowned in his own blood That's horrifying. Uh, it's deeply disturbing. I can't even imagine there was like 27 hours. So after he died um, and he was pronounced dead, it was determined by everyone that was there that it was too dangerous to try and retrieve his remains from the cave. Cause like I said, they would have to break several parts of his body with rigor mortis already setting in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somebody had already gotten injured just trying to rescue him. Um, so they decided to close the cave permanently and seal it off and basically make this his final resting place. I honestly think just like making this his final resting place and sealing it off was like a good choice. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you know, he was essentially buried alive down there. Uh, there is something very disturbing to me about the fact that this man entered into this hole and never left. Yeah. 
and never gets to leave. Yeah. Um, so they brought in some explosives and then used that to collapse the ceiling close to John's body. Okay. Um, and then also they filled the entrance to the cave, which is just one small hole with concrete to prevent further access. So pretty permanently sealing it. Great. Um, many of the volunteers, uh, many of the volunteer rescuers from the incident that were there on site were traumatized by the experience of course. and have not entered a cave since. Wow. Like this put a lot of people off from caving for like, you know, probably the rest of their lives. And I yeah. can imagine it because it is just hearing about it is like deeply disturbing. I can't even imagine like being there and like watching this unfold. Mm-hmm. Like this is like truly one of the most horrific stories I've ever heard, like in general. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's very, uh, God. Um, Despite this, uh, you know, the people who were there being traumatized, um, I was able to find significant stuff online of other cavers saying that they should still be allowed to explore the cave because it won't happen to them. It's just extremely frustrating. It's like, you should... (laughs) Fuck off. Fuck off. Like, nobody fucking cares about you. This is, like, this man's grave. Like... I'm, like, so disrespectful to, like, his family. Yes. The people who cared about him, yeah, his to him, his family, wife, all of the rescuers, yeah, everybody in the towns that like knew him, yeah, like so disrespectful to be like, well, I won't do that, I won't be stupid, right? Or someone, you know, like I said, the guy earlier being like, well, if he'd been maneuvered, he would never gotten stuck, and it's like, it's not an okay this thing to say ever, ever. This is like a horrific accident that happened. Yeah, um, it is like the number one nightmare for anyone that goes into caves. Mm-hmm. It is a terrible way to die. Yeah. And to just, like, basically make this man sound stupid, mm-hmm. I think, is, like, pretty disgusting. It's disgusting like, personally, I'm against caving. Yeah. And I don't think anyone should be in caves. No. Don't go in there. That's just, like, my personal opinion. Yeah. But I do not think that people are stupid for, like, pursuing their activities. Yeah. And I would never be like, well, John Jones shouldn't have been in that cave to begin with because he tragically died in yeah. there. And that is, like, not an okay, okay thing to say. Yeah. It's, like, the reason that I have so much, I feel like, malice for this, like, you know, activities for the people who do it, like, who are just so insensitive. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you are making it so hard to even care about people who just, like, do it and are normal people or whatever. Right. Because it's just so disgusting. That it happens in every single story. Yeah. Like, There's there always hasn't at been, least one person. Yeah, there hasn't been a single story that we've talked about or that I can even think about that doesn't have at least one very vocal person being like, well, that won't happen to me. Yeah. Like, shut up. I'm like, you guys need to stop. Like, there is, like, a weird thing of arrogance which honestly if you dig around in the dirt for what fun do you have to be arrogant about yeah arrogance is like the last thing that should be on your mind yeah i'm like if you spend any of your time squeezed into a small space mm-hmm. you do not get to be arrogant about the fact that you're so good at being squeezed so fucking weird like get a dom or something honestly yeah. like i don't want to hear about it honestly. and i do not want to hear the arrogance and the like belittling of people who literally died. Yeah, especially like so many stories have been like about recovery teams, like you know, and like with just David Shaw, we were just talking about him. I mean, I obviously don't know how disrespectful people were to David Shaw since he's such a big name, but like 
they're these people are risking their lives to recover somebody else mm-hmm. for their families. Yeah, like the Norwegian story. Yes, the guy was like, "Well, it's kind of crazy that they did that." He's like, "They shouldn't have done out that. there in terms of safety." Yeah, they're like, "I said it was too dangerous." It's like, "Oh my god!" They're they, just they're, trying to recover their friends. They're two friends that they were in there with. I'm like, let's all just be collect collectively glad that they survived. Yes, and that we can be enough. Yeah, we don't even have to if you could not it. do it. Yeah. You do not need to bring in your own ego. No. Because it's not a part of it. It's not a part of it. They survived yeah. because of luck. Yeah. And that is the truth with all caving. Mm-hmm. Accidents like this are not uncommon and they can happen to you. Mm-hmm. They can happen to anyone. Yeah. It is by luck that you survive. And arrogance tied to luck is like so despicable to me. It's just, it's evil. I'm like, David Shaw is the perfect example. Mm -hmm. He was beyond qualified to do this. Mm -hmm. And he died. And he knew that was a risk. Yeah. Because of the bad luck of getting like entangled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's our, you know, final soapbox. Final, yeah. (laughs) Final soapbox of this. Final Um, lecture. Yeah. Uh, I know this one is a little shorter. It's just these two stories, but I honestly feel like these are hard enough to hear. Yeah. They are so much harder to research than any of the other stories. I find them heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and like deeply, deeply sad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there is an article, actually, I thought this was kind of cool. I think it was a couple of years ago that it was published of somebody following up with his wife, his widow, um, who has been like remarried and the person she remarried, like officially adopted both of her children, Aww. her and John's children. So she has like, you know, continued to live a happy life, which I think is really good because this That's is like great. a horrific accident to live through. Can't even imagine waiting for hours, just mm-hmm. like, just waiting by the phone, mm-hmm. just like praying to God someone has some good news. Yeah. <sighs> so those are our stories. We are officially done with our spelunking um and i'm just gonna tell you guys now we are doing a a traumatic reading of the internet horror story ted the caver yes um if you were afraid of caves you've probably read this i personally think it's the best of any of the like internet creepypasta no sleep stories Mm -hmm. um it's just the best written i think it's really great um so we are going to be reading that yes a dramatic Um, cold reading yes mind you we're gonna be cold reading it yeah i'm not doing like actor prep i'm sorry Mm-mm. it's no. a long story we're just gonna be like free falling through it yeah uh providing some commentary about the story as we go yeah um so that's gonna be fun and take a week off from doing hardcore research for sure before we are back with a new series afterwards which we will update you then yes um we plug this every time but if you want to vote on our new series uh you can join our patreon for a dollar and it will help us pay for medication. <laughs> help us, like, buy books for stuff that we actually want to research. Yes. Um, and spend more time on these series. So if you want to vote for that, um, you can sign up there. Yeah, let us know. So we will see you guys next Friday. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye. The Podcast Rejects is a Gamer Frauds Network production. Find us on Instagram at The Podcast Rejects. For early access to all Gamer Frauds Network content and a ton of exclusive perks, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash gamerfrauds.